So from Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, and my returning guest today is Martin Puchner, professor of English, theater, and comparative literature at Harvard. An editor of more than one Norton anthology and author of many prize-winning books, among them The Written World. So this is another installment of our Books in Dark Times series, which as you probably know by now, if you're listening to this, explicitly takes its inspiration from Hannah Arendt's Men in Dark Times, which proposes that even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination, and that such illumination may well come less from theories and concepts. So I think there's an anti-theory move here. Then from the uncertain, flickering, and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and their works will kindle under almost all circumstances. So, you know, we're conceived in the belief that that's true, that there's kindling out there, even at a dark moment. And especially at a dark moment, we want to know what brings people like you, Martin, and like you, dear listener, comfort and joy. So we invite you to draw up a chair and listen, and then also please to send us your own thoughts about books that you have been turning to at this particular moment. So, so Martin, you know, I gave you some kind of softball questions to get the ball rolling. So if you remember, I, I the starters were simply, what books are you reading that are giving you comfort and why, or giving you joy and why? Yeah, so I, you know, the first book I turned to uh, a few weeks ago and events are moving so fast that I no longer think that that's a great choice, but then it seemed like a good book and a lot of people were talking about it is The, the Camera On by Boccaccio. And, and this came up because I was teaching a world literature course, and one of the texts there we were reading was not the Cameron, but a Thousand and One Nights, uh -huh. the frame tale narrative with all kinds of stories within it. And so I, it was one of the last in-person lectures I delivered. Yeah. And since I was talking about frame tale narratives, I, of course, my mind immediately went to the Cameron whose frame story, as, as you know, and as many people know, is, is a plague. And so this group of aristocrats withdraw to the countryside to spend the time telling stories, all different kinds of stories, to, to pass the time as in the outside world, the bodies are piling up. And it seemed like a good thing to talk about. Uh, it, so it's, mid, it's mid 14th century. It's a time when there were a lot of plagues, I guess. Is it? Yeah. Exactly. Coming from Asia, as it happens. Uh -huh. Not all plagues come from Asia, but this but one that did. That one did. Um, yeah. And, um, and but it, it celebrates the power of storytelling because that's how they, yes. you know, spent their time very much the way, I don't know, we spent the time uh, streaming Netflix and listening to podcasts. Yeah. But actually, but so Martin, just to just to push the analogy to Thousand and One Nights, it does, it's the power of storytelling because it's what they're doing as a passatiempo, like just to pass the time while waiting. But Thousand and One Nights has a much stronger claim because Scheherazade, actually, her stories are what keep her alive, right? But that's that's not true of the Decameron, right? There's no, there's no suggestion that there's an anti-plague quality to the... No, it's the 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 that would be interesting to have the stories actually uh, ward off the plague. That's I bet there's an Italo Calvino in which the story there must be an Italo. It's the story itself can annihilate the plague. Yeah. Yeah. Except perhaps only that it you know telling these stories keeps them from going crazy, which sure. we all you know sheltering at home. 
Yeah. It's, it's very hard. Yeah. In fact, my, my co-host Elizabeth Ferry was just talking about reading Journal of the Plague Year, which I bet is another book you thought about. And she made the point that Journal of the Plague Year, his problem, the central character's problem, is that he just will not shelter in place. Like he keeps going out, even though he knows it's dangerous. And so that's a really good point. So the, Decam the Decameron does suggest, hey, well, here's actually a thing you can do. Like you can, right, how to Netflix your life on your own, yeah. Exactly. But yeah. as I said, I, that, that seemed, you know, and this seemed like a good idea three weeks ago, but I, I have to say in the last week, I have turned, I mean, I guess I've become like a character in Boccaccio in that I have turned to pure escapism. And so my uh, a drug of choice is P.G. Woodhouse, um, yes. whom I, you know, I love and I've read, I think, the entire Irv, even yeah. the, the early cricket novels and God. short stories, which are That's not impressive. pieces of literature, but yeah. I, um, it's just, he's the perfect stylist. And in his world, nothing bad ever happens. Yeah. You know, it, it, these are novels set in a very rarefied, high aristocratic world yeah. in Britain and some also in New York. He's actually buried, buried on, on Long Island. It, it's really strange. Years ago, a friend who, you know, in suburban Long Island took, yeah. took me by his grave and it seems like the last place you would expect it because it's all about castles and highs, you know, right. London high society. Most of them are written in America, right? Isn't that right? Or I, I'm not sure actually whether that's the case, but he certainly spent significant time here and, and died here. And some of his novels are partially or entirely set in, in the United States. Okay. So Martin, so one of the big axes we've been exploring. So first of all, we've had I think five conversations and in four of them PG Woodhouse has come up. No, really? Oh, yeah. That's so you're clearly you've got your finger on the pulse of the glitterati, um, which is great. But We've been talking about kind of an axis between, I guess, relevance and escape. I suppose that's it. So it sounds like you started with something that's actually not very directly relevant. It's not as if you were reading a book about like pandemic or something, but you started with a book that had an immediate frame, uh, uh, an envelope that was plaguish, and then you ended up escaping. Is that what? fair? So, it is, uh, so do you have any thoughts about the meaning of the word comfort and the word joy in this context? Basically, at this point, only comfort is giving you joy. Is that what you would say? Well, comfort, I mean, that may be a good way of putting it. And though, I mean, the thing about P.G. Woodhouse, it's not, it's not fluffy. It's not feel good. It's, it's incredibly precise. The prose is yes. incredibly precise. So it's yes. this... It's this incredibly shiny, super well-crafted world in which, yeah. you know, if you dig language, you can enter and enjoy yeah. every sentence and the pacing yeah. of it and the turns of phrases and all of that. So this, it's not so much feel good, I would say, but it's this, you know, concoction, this incredibly elaborate and, yeah. and, and artful and artificial concoction yeah. that you can yeah. enter and enjoy, you know, and, and it is definitely a distraction in, right. in some sense, but it's not fluffy feel good. Okay, so I'm gonna put you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, put you on the spot as German born literature professor. So P.G. Woodhouse and Thomas Mann are virtually contemporaries, but you would never have thought of reading Thomas Mann. At this point. You know, I, I, I have to confess I didn't, but then, you know, again about, 
was it two and a half or three weeks ago when, when Stephen Greenblatt wrote this piece in The New Yorker, which I like very much, where he starts with Journal of the Plague Year and the Decameron, but then he, you know, he was in Italy and he just returned on one of the last flights to Italy. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I haven't read this. Yeah. And, and he said really what it seemed to him at the time, this was, again, this was at least three weeks ago, what Italy seemed to him like was not like Boccaccio with the piling up corpses, which of course is what Italy is now, or Journal of the Plague Year, but Thomas Mann's death in Venice. It's interesting because this is set in Venice during the cholera, but that fact only forms the backdrop of the novel, which is really about this infatuation of this older man with his younger man. And so it's more, so I think Stephen's point was really that there was something oblivious about it, that in this novel, yeah. The main character, they should care about the cola, yeah. but they actually can't and don't because they're obsessed with something else. So no, it, it, but, but so this is not my reading. I didn't think of that. Uh, yeah. but I think it's a really, it's a strong point. And uh, again, for the time, three weeks ago, seemed very timely. Yeah. No, well, now you're making me think of another novel that I really love. And you and I have never discussed uh, this, but... Uh, Herman Hesse's last novel, The Glass Bead Game, do you, are you, or Magister Ludens, I think it's sometimes called. Do you, do you, are you a fan of that book? Or? You know, I, I think I haven't read it since I was 17, and I have to admit, I don't remember it particularly well. well. So, I, I mean, I totally sympathize with anyone who read Hesse at 17 and thinks he's just completely full of shit, because I know a lot of the early books are just kind of bloviating about his kind of highly filtered conception of Germanic Buddhism or something. But Glass Bead Game was written in Switzerland where he was in exile, though it's sort of not exactly clear why he was in exile, but you know, he did leave Germany during the war. And it's about this world where people just play this game rather than engage in politics, except that somehow the game itself becomes a form of replacement politics, but always an inward looking one. So on some level, it feels like it's very directly an allegory of living in Switzerland during the war, but it's an allegory of the escape into a deeply satisfying intellectual kind of fabrication, like confection to use our concoction, like you said, which nonetheless seems to have a kind of imminent hermeneutics maybe, you know, so that it can be satisfying on its own terms. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the war. The other thing I've been reading, though not for pleasure or escape or whatever, dealing with what's going on, but for work, so to speak, is that I've been rereading works by the last generation. So uh, Hemingway's Movable Feasts, Gertrude Stein's texts about Paris, the autobiography of Asby Toklas, and other texts about Paris. And, you know, especially in in Gertrude Stein's case, this is something, a work that that covers her time, both during World War I and World War II, and in, you know, and Movable Feasts, part of that. Oh, interesting. Uh, And so, you know, I've been, I. I've been in my mind when I read these works before, you know, the world of the war and 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 all that uh, entails seemed incredibly foreign and incredibly in the past, and I could never yeah. imagine experiencing anything like it. Yeah. And of course, what we are going through is nothing like World World War One or World War Two. But one starts to comparisons. I found myself inevitably thinking about, okay, what what are the statistical dangers in which, you know, Hemingway or, or Gertrude Stein or Alice B. Toklas 
are in, what, what are the forms of life disruption that this kind of convulsion brought with it, yeah. and so on and so forth. So it, was so it wasn't so much that I turned to these works, but I found that I read them in a completely different way now than I did before. I mean, the thing, interesting thing about the last generation, the way Gertrude Stein coins this term, or it's really a mechanic who says it, is it's interesting. He describes it, and this is something we can start to think about, something I've been thinking about a lot, is that the after effects of this generation coming home from the war, yeah. and of course there are you know, great novels about shell shock and so on and yeah. so forth, uh, but this phrase, the last generation, is more general, that this is a generation that's been marked by this experience of World War One. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, I've started to think about what will, and, and I had a conversation with a friend the other day who yeah. was thinking a lot, what will this generation, a young generation, be, on the theory that if you're young, experiences, yeah. you know, are that much more yeah. informative, um, how will this experience mark them? Yeah. So how about childhood books? Are there books you would go back to or? Well, you know, I, um, for me, it, I mean, it's not very interesting, but certainly Lord of the Rings is a childhood yeah. book that I, that was very important for me. And um, yeah. um, I suppose I, I might return to that or, you know, the movies, which I actually kind of like. So what about, but what about like really old books, Martin? Like, are you tempted to just kind of go to a different world, like the Iliad or Gilgamesh or? You, you know, it's true. I've actually also, this is, there was partially a, a, a work justification, but I, all, about two weeks ago, I started to read through a collection of ancient, ancient Egyptian literature. Mm. And, and that was actually also interesting because on the one hand, you know, these are small fragments because they're very old and, and but they're, some of them are narrative. I mean, they're these old yeah. stories, but you, you certainly know, you, I mean, after, you know, like 80 or 90 pages, you realize things that are not surprising, but they take on different significance. For example, the incredible importance of the Nile yeah. and the flooding of the fields, which is a, a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's how yeah. nutri nutrients uh, get into the fields. Yeah. But certainly the precariousness of settled yeah. life that can be disrupted. In the course I mentioned before, we had just been reading, of course, the Epic of Gilgamesh and there, you know, nature's revenge in some sense is yeah. a, an important theme. So, yeah, so, so early Egyptian literature, I felt like I needed to read that anyway. And, it, and I thought it would take me into a completely different world. Yeah. And, and it did, uh, though there too, you think about, you know, the, the locusts are coming or the, you know, the, the, the river yeah. is not playing along or there are other disruptions. You just become very attuned to disruption. Yeah. All right, Martin. Well, so is there one last, one last book you want to talk about? Like a book, you know, that... Well, like, maybe, I, you know, it, and that too comes out of the course. Uh, and it's, yeah. a, it's a book I care a lot about, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. And it was eerie because I taught it in the very beginning of the semester. And the way I teach it is basically as a witness to 
the earliest forms of urban urbanization, yes, urban living. Absolutely. Yeah. Set in the city of Uruk, the yeah. King Gilgamesh is praised as the rebuilder of the city walls. And Uruk happens to be one of the first cities in the world, you know, even as long as, as 8,000 years ago, managing to concentrate 50,000 people in one right. small space. And this was made possible by intensive forms of agriculture and yeah. animal husbandry. And yeah. so this is, and, and Jared Diamond and Guns, Germs, and Steel talks about this. This is the world we live in. Of yeah, that's when we all ruined our digestion, you know? The seed of all future celiacs was set in the that, cereal but, eating. But also, it, it is the condition under which then certain illnesses, viruses, jump from animals Absolutely. to humans. Yeah. And so, in a way, I, I think that here, again, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is, it, it's not about disease, it's about a flood, which is very different, yeah. but it is sort of, you have to sort of read it against the grain or, or you know, before the background of, this is so, a tech. So in other words, if Enkidu comes out as the hero then, like if we'd all just stayed wild men like Enkidu, we would have been fine. Right. Yeah. And he, can he talk to the animals before he, before he lays with the priest? With the, he, with he lives the with it. He lives with the animals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Probably. He's somehow in communion with them or something. Yeah. 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 Oh, so man. It's, it's All right. Really about, yeah. uh, you know, concentrations of humans and animals and everything that results from it. Uh, well, oh my God, Martin, thank you very much. It's been a, a real pleasure. So I'll just say, recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and usually Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Cheslow and Barbara Cassidy and sound editing by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Callista Ross. So you can leave us a comment on this post to start the conversation, or if you're inspired, you can voice record your thoughts, email them to us at recallthisbookpod at gmail.com, and we might include them in an upcoming episode. We'd also love to hear from you on our various social media accounts via Instagram, Recall This Book, uh, Facebook, Recall This Book Pod, at Twitter, and you could use the hashtag hashtag books in dark times or a photo of a book you've recently turned to for comfort and joy and then you can check out what others are currently reading so from all of us here martin thanks thanks a ton and uh thank you for listening <laughs>